Mark chapter 7. Um, if you don't have a Bible, again, use the one in front of you. Uh, that's New American Standard. I use the uh, English uh, trans ESV version. But uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take this one. Or there's some out there on the missions little table out there. There, If you don't have one, feel free to take one. And it's a gift to you from us. So that would be a great thing if you would do that. There's a sermon illustration that's floating around in the preaching world, and it goes like this. One Sunday, a man uh, sat through the church service, and on the way home, he was griping about the sermon, and he was also complaining about the traffic and about the heat. It was in a summer day, and, and, and he made this big fuss when he got home because the lunch took too long to prepare. And um, he got up to the table and he bowed his head and he prayed and he gave thanks to God for the food. And, and his son was watching him all the way through this post-service experience. And at the, as the food was being passed, the son said this to him, Daddy, did God hear you when we left the church and you started fussing about the sermon and about the traffic and about the heat? And the father blushed and said, well, yes, son, he heard me. Well, daddy, did God hear you when you just prayed for this food right now? And the dad replied, well, son, he, he, he heard it. Well, daddy, which one did God believe? <laughs> the title of our sermon today is Religion Gone Bad. This morning's text is different than the last number of weeks as we've gone through this book of Mark. I understand there's been many public miracles and we've witnessed Christ with great compassion heal people, care for the needs of people, even those that missed a meal. We see how he fed them, but he 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 healed the lame, the blind. He, he gave back life to a little girl. He cured a woman who had been bleeding for years. And the conclusion you, I think we could make is that Jesus really cares for people. And the compassion, you think of the compassion that he demonstrated over and over again. But listen to this. If we only looked at the scriptures where he was taking care of people, we would conclude that he has a personality like this man. And let me put a picture on the screen here for you. You laugh. You know who that is. Mr. Rogers. I don't, is he still on TV today? I, know, I think he's passed away, isn't he? But See, I, I think we could conclude that, that Jesus is a Mr. Rogers. Yeah, he has lots of power, but that's his personality. The goal that would be to make everybody feel calm and, and feel good about themselves and take care of people. But the setting is different today. First, you've got to notice that there's going to be a group of people that they weren't impressed with Jesus. These people were the Pharisees, and Jesus was a threat to them. And Pharisees, if you know that word, we've got to dig into that a bit this morning. You understand the Pharisees, they believed that they had a corner on religion, and they were the ones who knew how to run the church, and, and they were, knew what was right in terms of what was religious and what was holy and righteous. This group 
was watching Jesus and keeping an eye on him, feeling a bit threatened by Jesus. But understand today that when we see Jesus here as we read the text this morning, he's not a Mr. Rogers. Today we see a Jesus that pushed back hard at people and he challenged people. Matter of fact, to say it all different, he actually goes after the motives within the hearts of people. He goes after motives. Now, over the years in, in counseling with people, I have found, in this area, I have found something very consistent. People don't like when you dig into their motives of why you do what you do. Uh, years ago, I was working with a marriage, probably 10 years ago or so, and, and this marriage was in trouble, and they had been married over 30 years. And, and I remember meeting with this couple, and the goal of that time was to help them understand what real unconditional agape love was. That was the purpose of us getting together that day. And I remember this um, uh, coming into this time, and the wife, uh, she sat there and she insisted that she was the one in the marriage that was loving unconditionally. And that her husband, her husband was there, and he was the one that wasn't loving. And there came a moment in meeting with that couple where these words slipped out of her mouth. And this is almost verbatim of what she said. How much longer do I have to give until I get something in return? And my response, I paused and I, and I said this. I said, did you just hear what you said? Your love wasn't unconditional. Now, understand, at the deepest level within her heart, the moment, the motive of giving and loving her husband was to get something back. And at that moment, when I pointed that out, she wasn't very happy with me. And in matter of fact, um, you know, as I told her and pointed out her inability actually to love in an agape way, and that her heart was dominated, really trying to get something from her husband. So her definition of love wasn't love. Um, the marriage didn't survive. But today we understand that Jesus goes after the hearts of people and he's dealing with the motives, and, and so he's the opposite of Mr. Rogers here today. Matter of fact, what he does, he takes a knife out, and he opens the heart up, and he reveals the motives of people. And in this exchange that we're going to read, you go, why did he do that? If you're following along in the notes, and why did Mark record this even for us? And here's what I, as I ponder that, I, I said this, the Holy Spirit uses scripture to hold up a mirror to our hearts, because we, folks, we have to admit sometimes we just might be a Pharisee as well. And I think it's safe to say that the Holy Spirit knows our hearts and wants us to embrace and understand some things that Mark is recording for us today. He wants to dig and, and scrape within our souls. Now, one last piece is before we dig into the text here. Uh, the, the context under here really is about the title, Religion Gone Bad. 
It's what happens when things are brought into a faith. So let's read the text to begin by reading it. Look at verse chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, and it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So we have two groups of people here in this passage. The Pharisees. First, this religious party. By the way, the word Pharisee actually means separatist. They wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles, believing that if they touched them and even bumped into them, that they were going to be corrupted and they were going to be defiled spiritually. But the second group we have, you notice, were the scribes there in verse 1. They were the ones that were in charge of interpreting the law, guarding the definitions of what, sanct, uh, what sanctity was and holiness. So these two groups, they're paying attention to Jesus and the disciples, and they see that the disciples end up eating their food without washing their hands. Now, again, remember, this wasn't about hygiene. This is not about that. It was a ceremonial washing, which was done very specifically. They had to do a certain method, and it actually even included a prayer. But what the, why they did it is, again, if you were in the marketplace and you bumped into somebody that was defiled, then it means that you were defiled and potentially the, it could come through the hands into the soul and that made you defiled. So you needed to do this ceremonial washing. But here's the deal. There was no such thing in the law. As a matter of fact, in verse 13, I, I won't, you don't have to go there, but... Jesus accuses them of doing this over and over again in all sorts of different things. See, they were inventing rules, not biblical rules, but they were inventing things to define what was deeply religious. Really, by doing this, the, the Pharisees were given the Jewish faith a, a bad name. But understand in this passage as we walk through it, there's really three parts, and I'm going to lump them all together. So for your notes here, when you think of religion that's gone bad, it really comes out of this three things. And the first one is tradition. And the second one is hypocrisy. And the third one is legalism. And I'm going to lump them together for the sake of time. But notice verse 6. Let me go to that one again. They accuse the disciples of not doing the hand washing, and Jesus pushes back. Look what he says. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? And it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. 
do you catch how hard Jesus is pushing back? But let me give you the first reality of tradition and hypocrisy and religion when it gets infused into a faith. Number one, for your notes, observe this. Religion gone bad distorts the true meaning of worship. Jesus is accusing them of false worship in vain. Do they worship me? And he is thumping a truth. And it's this, that worship starts in the heart. Worship starts on the inside. And when religion goes bad, people put an emphasis on outward forms. But here's the deal. We have to admit that any group of people can do this, and we can do it in our day as well. Now, let me go down a path again. I know I've done it at least once before, but there's a path that makes us a bit uncomfortable in our day and age. Now, my observation over the last 45, 50 years is this, that there has been a belief, particularly in my generation and even the one that's before me, a little bit older, that modern worship music is unworthy to be called worship music. And part of the justification of this is that some believe it doesn't teach enough doctrine. Now, listen, I like music that includes good doctrine. But I believe that when you make that statement, they're missing a biblical point of worship. See, worship is about the heart It's about the bending of the mind, the will, and our affections toward God. And when you study the topic of worship, and particularly the word, it's not about information or doctrine per se. Literally, it means to kiss toward, to kiss the feet. It means to prostrate oneself on the ground before that which is worthy. Worship is not fundamentally about education and learning. Worship at the core is an expression of the heart. It's about giving our love through the mind and the will and affections. Now, when, I, when one grows up in a church, I think here's the challenge. It often leads to creating traditions that we can't defend biblically. And that's what the Pharisees did. But the slide begins by believing that our tradition is biblical and biblically centered, and it may or may not be true. See, it's easy to form traditions that have no basis on good doctrine or good theology. Again, i got to emphasize, and what's the issue here, folks? God looks at the motive of our hearts in worship. And this applies to every generation and every preference. And by the way, the young can dismiss the preferences of the older generations as well and be in the same place. So hear me, you can sing, you can raise hands, you can shed tears, you can dance, and none of it might be real worship. Or you can sing songs, you can raise hands, you can shed tears, you can dance, and it it might be profoundly worshipful. You catch that. 
Worship is about the heart, and that's what he's going after the Pharisees. You worship in vain. You worship in vain. So we need to be careful here in becoming the guardians of what outward expressions of worship really are, whether you're young or whether you're old, because it might be just a tradition. We have to admit that. But folks, God reads our hearts. It starts there. He knows the deepest corners. He knows when it's false worship. One person said it this way. We probably have more people taking the Lord's name in vain in churches than anywhere else. And he's probably right. But God knows our hearts. Let's keep going in the text. Look at verse 7, end of verse 7. Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men, Now, by the way, there's lots of ways we could apply this, but notice Jesus here gives an illustration. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making the void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This is just one illustration of many things that they were doing. But what's happening here? Again, Jesus is speaking to the reality of their hearts. He's holding up a mirror. Let me state the application number two. Religion gone bad pushes us to elevate traditions and man-made rules above the written commandments of God. And Jesus here uses the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother to point out the hypocrisy of their heart. See, I understand this. They were trying to get out of spending money on mom and dad when they needed it. And what they would do is they they would take their money and they would take a vow and dedicate it to God and then it was God's money and it didn't, didn't have to be used to help mom and dad out. So it would make this vow, they would designate it to the temple, and more than likely it would have been part of their tithe, and it was done to show their righteousness, that they were really holy giving this money. And so mom and dad would come along, and and they would respond something like this, and mom and dad, I, I would love to help, But you know what? I've dedicated this money that could have helped you. I've dedicated it to God and the temple. And therefore, you know, I just don't think I could help out. Now, it's interesting when he uses that word rejecting in that text. It's a very strong word. But Jesus is revealing the hypocrisy of their hearts, their lack of honor to mom and dad. Now, we've got to realize this. Back then, uh, there was no retirement accounts. You know, we set up retirement accounts. There was no Social Security. When, par- when parents got old, there was one retirement plan. And you know what that plan was? 
the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. And, and we stop and realize this illustration of Jesus. Boy, this applies to our culture as well, doesn't it? And I think this rubs many people wrong even today. Because I, at times I see people care more about their money, and, or matter of fact, they care more about mom and dad's money than mom and dad. When I was in Vancouver, I worked for a healthcare company, equipment and oxygen and that kind of stuff. And there'd be people come in and mom and dad, or dad would need a walker and it would really be good to put wheels on that to really help them out. And, and these grown sons and daughters are coming, oh, we don't want to spend that money on mom and dad. And you go, why? And the only conclusion I could think of is what they didn't want mom and dad to spend it so they would get it later. But catch this illustration. If one claims to have a faith and a commitment to Christ and we are unwilling to esteem our parents, which might mean financially supporting them when when they're incapable of doing it on their own, Jesus would use the words hypocrisy. And I see way too many people who call themselves Christians view that they have no responsibility toward their parents. Or grandparents. See, the heart has a deep capacity to ignore the scriptures and still present themselves as mature in Christ and their faith. Jesus is going hard after these people. Look at the next section, verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Defile him, Folks, this is a pretty strong slap at them, to the Pharisees. This is contradictory to what they were saying. Verse 17, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. That parenthesis there, if you have it in the scriptures, that's Mark's commentary there. Okay, that the, there's an extended meaning there. Verse 20, and then he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. That, folks, is a pretty extensive list, isn't it? But guys, there's a theological lesson here on this heart issue, and it's critical. See, it's not about what we eat and what we drink. But here's the deal. Too many people don't understand the nature of sin and the connection to the heart. In verse 16, he's saying that food, even if touched by Gentiles, that doesn't make you unclean or clean. He's saying that the real motive of sin starts within the heart and then the outward sin flows. See, a heart understanding of sin is so critical. If you look around our world and you look at the ugliness 
and the hatred, the racism, the jealousy, the discord in families and marriages. When you just ponder that, everyone knows that things are not as they should be. In my inbox this week, George Barna came out with a new survey. And he basically concluded this, our country has never been more divided ever. Ever. The, the relationships that are broken all over the place between groups of people and between marriages and families. And, and I think we look at that and we agree something is broken and it needs to change. So relationships break down between people and groups and individuals and marriages. Morality is dissolving and few people really want to consider it a spiritual heart issue. I, I think the result of humanity, they need to do this. We really don't understand what was take, is taking place is at the root in the Garden of Eden. Remember when Eve sinned and Adam sinned? Shame, hiding, and blaming. You understand because of that, the blaming piece there, that we've adopted the right to treat anybody else when we decide it how we want to. So we can reject them. We, we claim the right that we can pick up a verbal sword and we can cut them and we have the right to be unloving. And, and you know the, the contrary piece, when you look at the world today, psychology and sociology believes this, that education and information alone will fix the broken issues in the world. And I go, no way. It's never been true. It's never worked. Otherwise, if we said that relationships and racism and injustice would be getting better and better, and folks, it's not. It's not. But understand, this can be very personal too because I think practically it goes like this, but we, we, we want to go, when things are breaking down relationally, we want to go, but Jesus, the reason I'm angry and I'm bitter, it's because of how the other person treated me. And when we say that, what we do is become victims to others and groups of people. Jesus, don't you know I'm a victim to those people? That's why I talk evil of them. Jesus, my wife isn't loving to me. That's why I move toward another woman and give my love illegitimately. Jesus, my husband isn't making me feel good, so therefore I have the right to throw daggers at him and words and looks at him that kill See, folks, at the heart level, justification and coming to believe that it's not my fault, that I can't love well because of what the other person is doing, that is rooted in the lie in Genesis 3, where we claim the right to decide what is right and wrong and the way to get there. We claim the right to not forgive. See, the world and psychology, sociology tells us that if you just have enough information, it's going to make everybody get along. But listen, regardless of the external evil influences that we may encounter, 
ultimately the bottom line is that the sin comes from within us, from the core of who we are. And people want a, a better life, so they change cities, jobs, houses, relationships, churches. But you are still you. See, we, we spend so much time reshuffling circumstances, hoping to get a better result. But the reality is, folks, is that our heart might be worse than we think. Listen to a quote from a scholar. Sin is an inner ambition of the soul. The sinner wants to sin, and in any given test, no sinner ever unwants what he wants. It's a little heavier. Only a new and stronger desire can ever break the desire to sin. See, Jesus is the only one that can provide an adequate, adequate solution for the heart issue. Pharisees didn't get it. He was standing right in front of them, the solution. They didn't understand it. But let me give you one more to fill in that blank there for your notes. Number three, religion gone bad leads to creating an appearance of godliness while remaining unrepentant or even unconverted. Jesus is telling these men, your faith is about image and not essence. And maybe along with the Pharisees, we create a list of thou shalt nots where the motive is to earn favor from God and people, hoping that people will think of us as a mature person. And the reality is that's hypocrisy. But it can also be the opposite. We can do good things. And still, it can be an outward appearance. We give to church, we go on missions trips, we study the scriptures to become knowledgeable. But it may not be the heart. Folks, God wants our hearts. He wants the outside to reflect the inside. To be changed. And he wants us pursuing him because he is the answer. He wants people to orientate their entire life around him. He wants us to be in him and actually want him. Instead of believing that our sins are manageable and can be fixed without Jesus. People keep wanting just the right techniques and three-step formulas to get rid of sin. Folks, it won't happen unless we find Jesus. But let me end with an illustration this way of what really God wants from us here. Deanna and I are going to be celebrating our 40th anniversary this summer. And what if I were to plan something really special for her? You know, take her to Fargo or something like that. <laughs> okay, that wouldn't work. What if I decide to take her to the Bahamas? And I plan and I book the flights and the hotel and we, we go to these great outdoor restaurants, you know, by the ocean. And, and maybe on our anniversary day, I hire some musicians to come and play for her and, and have this great setting on our anniversary day. And, 
And what if we get to the end of that celebration trip and Deanna on the way home throws a question at me asking me this, why did this for her? And what if I responded this way? Well, the reason I did this is, is some of the guys in my DNA group told me I was supposed to do this. <laughs> or, or what if I answered this? I, I did this because I didn't want you to get mad at me for by not doing something. I, imagine where she would go emotionally with that. The disappointment of that whole celebration ruined because of the wrong heart attitude. What would she really be hoping for? Wouldn't it be something like this? If these words came out of my mouth, because I love you, because I'm, I'm really crazy about you even after 40 years, where it's a joy to be with you and to do this for you, I just want to do it. Folks, that's what God wants for us. He wants us to kick back on hypocrisy and legalism and tradition. And he wants us to move toward him. It's not just about coming to church to do the right things. And he wants our hearts. God's not after our church attendance or a Bible study or good behavior. He wants our hearts. And he wants to change them. Because we got to admit, all of our hearts are infected. God wants our greatest thoughts to be about him. He wants us to be gushing over him and thinking about him constantly. He wants us to organize our lives around him and his son. And he wants us, because of that, when that starts to happen, we begin to love better. And the sin begins to slide away because there's a new desire. But we have to admit, to have these attitudes, it first starts with repentance and looking in a mirror to go, God, what do you want for my heart so we need to invite the Holy Spirit into our hearts to hold up a mirror. And we need the Holy Spirit to dig in the corners to root out some of the tendencies like the Pharisees had. Now, I would remind you here as well, sometimes God uses other people to do that. And that's okay. Embrace it. But he wants us to turn, to repent, and to run toward him. And it says that he will give us a new heart. And those old things will begin to fade away, and those desires will start to leave us as we increase our desire for God. He gives us a new and greater desire, and it overwhelms the power of sin. And we become a people who love God and love others, and we become true worshipers in spirit and in truth. Let's stand and pray.